0: Welcome to The Sunny Side, the podcast that makes solar energy relatable, accessible and attainable. Join us as we journey behind the scenes with women taking amazing strides in all parts of the solar industry. I'm your host, Sharon Lee, and thank you for joining us today. Welcome back to the sunny side. I am so excited about today's episode. Can't wait for everyone to meet this month's guest. But before I do that, I'm going to dive into Sharon's corner. Yes, I'm Sharon Lee with Velo Solar, and I love talking to women in the renewables industry and hear about what they're doing and how they're making a difference. In my personal world, I am still, I think I'm kind of in a rut. I keep talking about having a new driver in the house and, you know, that's no joke. That is definitely something that is taking years off my life. I'll have to tell you that. My favorite recent quote from my 15 year old was, and for some reason I was driving, I think we were going to get on the interstate. I haven't quite let him get on the interstate yet. And as we're driving, he said, mom, do you have a road rage? And I said, well, I don't really road rage. I might complain about what somebody's doing or something like that, but dude, life is too short. No, I don't road rage. And his response was, you're right. Life is too short. I got to get where I'm going. So I'm going, I'm raising a budding road rager and speed demon. I'm not sure I'm doing this right, but okay. Anyway, so aside from that, we've been spending time on the ball field, baseball, football is in full swing. Oh, and college football is in full swing. So I'm going to say go Vols. I can tell you my next guest will not agree with me, but you know, there's, not many people on the planet that will agree with me. So okay, that's all right. The other thing is we did have our Empowered Women's event. That was just a couple of weeks ago, pulling women from around the Southeast. And we met on the Beltline at Velo's office and raised a glass to the Inflation Reduction Act, which has been newly passed into law. So that was really exciting and perfectly timed. So with that... I would like to introduce my guest from today, Chandra Farley. She is the CEO of Resolve, founder of Good Energy Project and former candidate for public service commissioner here in Georgia. So welcome, Chandra. Thanks so much, Sharon. I'm glad to be here with you in this conversation today. Fantastic. Well, normally I would start the conversation with, tell us about your background. You know, how did a girl graduate of University of Kentucky, you know, in the cheerleading world and all this stuff, how did you end up in the renewable space? But I feel like for you, we've got to back up a little bit because you've got a great, very interesting story going all the way back to being raised by your grandparents. So go back and tell us a little bit about where you came from. Happy
1: to. And I am a Tennessee girl, at heart, so I grew up in a you know a Vols household for sure. So going to University of Kentucky was something that was talked about. <laughs> um, but, um, and I actually ended up graduating from the Art Institute of Atlanta. So I was at Kentucky for a number of years in the architecture program, and and I cheered there and left to pursue cheerleading full time. I mean, I taught cheerleading camps for Varsity Spirit Corporation in the summer, in the fall, you know, I was coaching, I was judging, and I, you know, feel like everything I ever needed to know, I learned growing up, being raised by my grandparents, kind of being raised in the country, you know, kind of a rural, you know, town area, and working in our restaurant and cheerleading, right, you know, and going to church, right, all of those things, but, you know, being, raised by grandparents, that meant, you know, they remember not being able to vote. You know, that was very present in their lives. They went to segregated schools. Those schools were later my elementary schools. And their class pictures, actually, of their class and their friend's class lined the walls of our restaurant. There were these huge senior photos. So, just being grounded in that history, they still held their own homecoming and reunion, you know, events for for Union High School. So there was always a strong grounding in civil rights and social justice and a strong commitment to, you know, being committed to your community and working in your community. And that civil rights, social justice, Natural environment, you know, my great-grandparents had a garden. Sometimes whatever was growing in the garden, we used that in the restaurant. You know, we didn't call that farm to table back then. That's just what you did with your food, right? You grow your food, you eat the food. One of my first jobs was, you know, scraping the food off the plates into the big bin buckets and Some cousins that had a farm, you know, out of town would come and get those and feed it to the pigs, you know, and that's fertilizer, you know, was made and all of that. And I didn't have language like for composting, you know, back then. But, you know, that's what, you know, so this whole life cycle around and even younger me and my next door neighbor, we used to walk around in the summer and pick up the aluminum cans because we could take them down to the dump for money. You know, and that was our candy money. You know, (laughs) which was very important in the summer when you're little. So, all of these civil rights, you know, sort of natural environment, recycling, sustainability, but not that name back then, is really what informed where I am today. You know, working at the intersection of of the built environment and respect for the natural environment and how energy impacts both of those things positively and negatively.
0: Well, and the political environment, do I remember you saying that even the restaurant that your grandparents owned that that would be used as some campaign headquarters and you actually jumped in to help. I don't remember what you said you did to help out on campaigns and that sort of thing, but I mean your political roots are from way back. Yeah, definitely.
1: You know, I had a cousin, you know, who was vice mayor, you know, which was a big deal folks from our church, you know, that would run for city council. And our restaurant in the later years was closed Monday through Wednesday. And there was a period where we were closed and, you know, folks could use that for campaign meetings or, you know, during the day or after we closed campaign headquarters. So I've been around that, you know, knocking doors for people or making flyers, whatever, for a very long time. So really being rooted in, understanding politics as an important lever of power and politics as community responsibility as well.
0: And I think you coined the phrase organic circular past. And I think that's perfect. That's perfect. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so you had that environment. And then you tell me a little bit, because you had some time at South Face and did some green building work and so forth. And so that kind of started you in this trajectory, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned that my background, I started out in school
1: majoring in architecture, and that was something else. Like my daddy used to buy houses and fix them up, kind of like in his spare time. And he would rent those out, you know, to people from our church, some of the women that worked in our restaurant. And so, I grew up, you know, stomping around on foundations, running in and out of, you know, walls that were just at stud phase or, you know, tear downs and things like that, and that really informed why I ended up majoring in architecture, but I ended up finishing at the Art Institute of Atlanta with a fine arts degree and I, I focused on interior design. So, still, you know, around buildings, how do buildings work? Still connecting that to community, you know, working on different projects, um, working with communities who couldn't afford architects. Mm-hmm. And so I worked with a nonprofit called Architecture for Humanity for a long time that provided pro bono design and construction services to community groups or neighborhood groups. And when the housing market crashed, my job disappeared like awesome. almost overnight. You know, I mean, you know, we can look back at what happened, you know, to building design and construction industry. And I went back to what I knew, you know, which was hospitality. You know, I had worked grown up in a restaurant. You know, I mm-hmm. had done events, you know, with cheerleading and things like I hosted speed dating parties. Like I did it all. And... <laughs> <I love> it. <laughs> there was a restaurant I was working at and met someone who became a really dear friend of mine who was working at South base energy Institute. And they were looking for someone to come in as they were finishing building out the eco office, which maybe many of your listeners, at least in the Georgia Atlanta area have probably been to. And we're looking for someone to come in and set up meetings, trainings, events. We did a lot of training and because I also had the buildings, you know, background and understood buildings, I was on the facilities team and worked my way into leading our nonprofit energy and water efficiency programs. And so that was sort of the, it wasn't really a jump, right? Again, it was a natural opportunity, but very unplanned, but exactly what I needed to be doing. And it was at South Face where it's kind of like, okay, sustainability, or, you know, we're doing these weatherization trainings, we're doing these green building trainings. And it's kind of like energy efficiency. And it's like, you mean the way my great grandmother used to put the towel in front of the door or... Right, you know how my mama used to tell me to shut that door because I was letting the air out, or turn that faucet off, stop leaving the water running, and so it was all of these things that I had grown up with. And this is a common story, right? I mean, this is you know people remember this— their moms or grandmoms or aunties or whatever. I'm old enough to where uh, my daddy used to even get onto me for talking long distance on the phone when that was a thing, <laughs> especially after coming home from college and. You know, wanting to stay in touch with my roommates and things like that. So it was at South Beach where I really started to investigate like, hmm, you know, it's sustainability and these things like terms being repackaged and sold back to the very people that innovated them, the very people who had to depend on them as now something that wasn't for them or something that was wrapped up in a very confusing utility program or wrapped up in a very confusing green building program or only apply to communities or buildings that they couldn't afford to live in, right? So that was really where I started to investigate my own thinking and was fortunate to be at a place like South Face, on the one hand, who has long and continues to struggle with diversity and reaching in the community, but was also a place that was very open and welcoming if you could get in there, right? And yeah, so that was really where I started to bring those two things together and led me to apply and get into the EPA's Environmental Justice Academy. And that was really where, you know, I really started to focus more on environmental justice.
0: More intersections of all of these things in your background, for sure. So from there, let's see, you went to the Partnership for Southern Equity as well, right? Yep. So tell me how you yep. Made that jump.
1: So the EPA's Environmental Justice Academy was focused on collaborative problem-solving model that they had developed in partnership with community. And this was all about working with communities that were defined as, we say environmental justice communities, but really what they are, communities of injustice, right? But this was a process that was developed to foster community collaborations with the very industries and maybe other forces that they were fighting back against. So the academy was shaped around these nine modules of the collaborative problem solving model. So it was a nine month program. And one of the things that we had to do, everybody had to create a community project. And at the time, based on some work I had done with Architecture for Humanity, I was working with an organization called Community Movement Builders. I'm still on the board for that in the Pittsburgh neighborhood of Atlanta, Um, a historically working class African-American community that has been and is under intense gentrification pressure after being really hard hit by the foreclosure crisis. So as I was investigating, you know, working on this community project, we had to do a community assessment. And at the time, I had been at South Face probably like seven years, and I was kind of really thinking about what was next. I loved so much working on buildings, working on our nonprofit energy and water efficiency program, which some folks might remember was called Grants to Green. And part of my work, which was a Metro Atlanta focused program, but my work was about expanding that to a national footprint. So I was working with Boys and Girls Clubs of America, Feeding America and the Food Bank Network, and Salvation Army. And I didn't have the language for it then. I did this you know, not having language for things that I was doing has kind of been a theme so far, I think, of my life in this conversation. But that was really the work of energy equity, because when we think about our nonprofits, they are our community anchor institutions, Mm -hmm. and they are often very behind in their buildings, right? You know, these are not the best buildings a lot of times that they are operating out of. They don't have the money or the knowledge Sometimes we're exposure to what is energy efficiency? Why should we care about this? You know, oh. but when we could show when our engineers would go out and put together a project list and we would could fund half of the project cost, and a boys and girls club could save a thousand dollars a month just by changing out their LED lighting.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's
1: an additional twelve thousand dollars a year that they were realizing savings for very immediately because we were helping them with the upfront cost. Well, that's like in some of these clubs, that's an additional 300 kids they could serve a year. Mm -hmm. Some clubs could hire additional art teachers in the summer. And so then the kids were getting excited. They were talking to their parents. We were educating the staff of the clubs who sometimes had never seen their utility bill because it might be going to an administrative office. So it was this really exciting movement. And as much as we wanted to do more in working with The kids, you know, with education programs or the staff, our job was to come in and do the technical work and the education around why this makes sense. So the combination of that work and the Environmental Justice Academy, I just started to realize that I really wanted to get closer and back to working more with the people And the communities that the buildings shelter and serve. And having the technical knowledge that I had, I was able to sort of act as a community translator around why energy, water and resource efficiency was so important and could deliver actual tangible benefits to improve
0: material conditions in the community. Right. And, you know, nonprofits and I guess even a commercial business for that matter, you know, you spend so much time on your day to day that you think you don't have time to look into those sorts of things. And then when you realize the results of them, you go, oh, my gosh, why didn't I do this a long time ago? But I mean, it's always you know, it's all the same. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the Better Buildings Challenge, you know, that was so
1: big in Atlanta, which is how I got to South Face was because they were expanding because of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. And, you know, the money that was pumped into energy efficiency and all of this, it's a capacity issue, right? You know, building owners, especially the facility managers, right? Mm -hmm. They got plenty to do. And we were also able to bring these nonprofits into those conversations. So being able to connect those nonprofits to You know, the commercial buildings, you know, that were also going through and having those nonprofits highlighted, just like we were having those big commercial buildings highlighted, was really some of the most important work I've ever done. And so it was through that process that I decided to take the opportunity at Partnership for Southern Equity to build out their Just Energy work, which had just been getting off the ground. A lot of people were familiar with a coalition called the Just Energy Circle. And so it was a great opportunity for me to really bring all my passions together, community, people, social justice, and energy and buildings.
0: Well, you know, so then you go through the housing bubble and you think you're smooth sailing and then the pandemic hits, right? And so there's so many different pandemic stories from people that, you know, had so many different, whether it was a challenge or whether just facing different sorts of things. But not Chandra, you decide to like reinvent yourself one more time. And that's where the creation of Resolve came from, right? Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, like a
1: lot of us during the pandemic, you know, I say a lot of us, you know, just talking to folks about different businesses they were started or craft business, you know, all of these things. And I had been at South Face for eight years. And when I made the transition to partnership for Southern Equity, I was growing in my personal life and my professional life. I knew that what I wanted to do, how was I setting myself up for what I wanted to do next? As I was learning about the things I really, really liked to do as a part of the work and the things I really didn't um, enjoy <laughs> about some of the work. Resolve became a platform for me to be picky about what kind of projects I wanted to do, mm-hmm. but then also to add another layer around environmental justice and energy justice, which was capacity building for the organizations that carry so much of the community work. And we talked about capacity issues with commercial building owners and facility managers that are running commercial buildings or nonprofits. Well, this is the same thing that is happening with community organizations. Mm-hmm. There's so much work to do. There's There's so many things to do and community-based organizations and grassroots organizations are so used to being under-resourced that they're always operating like at a level of scarcity, not enough resources, but do incredibly amazing things with what they've got, which is the plight of women, right? Which is the plight of poor people, the plight of, you know, marginalized groups, just knowing how to survive and do more with less. And that just doesn't have to be right? You know, scarcity is really false in a lot of cases. So with Resolve, I was able to make myself available to maybe organizations that were more technically focused who were interested in bringing an energy justice lens to their work, educating their boards on energy justice and why it might be important to adjust their theory of change, adjust their strategic plan to really incorporate justice as a core component of the work, Versus it being something like, oh, yeah, we heard about this and we, yeah, we want to do something about that, but we're not going to change the way we do our work, which that just doesn't work. <laughs> the box that you check off, right? Yeah, yeah, right. This is not box checking. This is about systems change and it's hard work. So that was really the platform that I've been continuing to build with Resolve and also that layer of working with those organizations who have been under-resourced working with marginalized communities on the kind of organizational development, just basic process, you know, because I had to build those things, right? Right. You know, also being in organizations that might be considered more premier organizations, you know, if you will, like as far as budget size or staff size. But we know when we get in there with some of the programs that we do, depending on what it is, you kind of hand to mouth with grants sometimes. So, I've had to wanting to offer my experience and having to build infrastructure, you know, build equitable infrastructure to move work so we have more impact with our
0: missions. Right. Well, and then how did the Good Energy Project spin out of that? Is that the best way to say it, that it's spun out of that? Or is it just a completely different entity? Tell me about the distinction there.
1: Spinoff might be, I mean, I was thinking about them at the same time. So they really are, you know, Resolve is a business. You know, this is about being able to offer business services, consulting services, but still very mission oriented, you know, as I am. The Good Energy Project, I mean, obviously sprouts from everything I've learned in my work, but the more I continue to dig down, particularly when we look at the disparities related to access to renewable energy who was disproportionately impacted by high utility bills? You know, women are heads of households. Who was disproportionately impacted by the most negative outcomes and most negative impacts of climate change? These are Black communities, you know, led by Black women. And also, Black women are community anchors. You know, you think about in certain communities, there's that. And who's the most dependable voting block? Black women what do we need to make change in our clean energy industry so it is more equitable? Well, we need to change who's in decision-making seats because when we have more women and we know all the studies and we didn't need a study to tell us that we know how to make decisions, right? I mean, they just, (laughs) we know what we're doing and women are caretakers. We're caretakers of our communities. And so We just make decisions very differently with that in mind. And so the Good Energy Project was how do I, and I'm still thinking about it. I just met with a young woman who I admire so much, Diamond Spratling, who worked at Greenlink for a while and has now launched her nonprofit called Girl Plus Environment. And we were talking yesterday just about how difficult it is to connect people to issues of energy and environment when It's like infrastructure, right? Nobody's really thinking about it until it breaks. Mm -hmm. You know, as long as the light comes on, nobody's thinking about there's five people in Georgia that make the decision about how much that's going to cost you, right? They just see their utility bill and you can either pay it and it's on auto pay and you're blessed to be able to do that Mm -hmm. or you can't pay it and it's a point of stress, It's a point of low self-esteem because you're blaming yourself. Why can't I afford to pay my energy bill? And so all of these compounding things. So I wanted to laser focus in on voting, civil rights, power, equitable decision making, and mixing that with the power of Black women as another way to take care of our community.
0: Well, and you coined another phrase. You're my queen for the phrases for sure. I'm going to have to do this little side t-shirt business with all your phrases. on. But You said you can't be what you can't see. And I love that. So explain what you mean by that.
1: Exposure is everything. If I hadn't grown up padding around buildings and watching my daddy tear down houses or build them up again, you know, I may not have gone because that was it. I was like, what am I going to major in? I wasn't really sure, but I knew I was really interested in that work. It's like, oh, okay, well, I got an architecture school, you know, and like went on from there. Or I think you can talk to anyone about anything that they are interested in. If you can see it, and if you can see someone that looks like you doing it, Mm -hmm. then you think it is something that you can also do. And that is critically important, particularly for maybe children and people who don't have like the best support system, or who are living in communities that struggle, where you're, who's seen a solar panel, right? I may have never even seen one if I hadn't been doing this kind of work, because where are they? They're up on somebody's roof, unless you're driving, you know, like through South Georgia, and you know to look for it, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can't be what you can't see is just about the importance of exposure, and making sure that we are being intentional about reaching out to communities who we know are not exposed to these technologies because they're still too expensive or their communities have been disinvested in. And, you know, if you can't be
0: what you can't see, you can't ask for something that you don't know might help you. Right. Well, and this is a perfect segue into mentorship. That's something else that we had talked about. And generally as i've spoken with women they don't have a formal approach to mentorship so tell me what how you go about it and kind of your angle on mentorship
1: yeah i enjoyed this part of our conversation i definitely think of mentorship in a untraditional way i was a coach with cheerleading you know coaching cheerleading <laughs> teaching cheerleading you're coaching young women and men you know young people around not just the motions not just the stunts and skills but how to be a good teammate conflict resolution which you can imagine working with teenagers or you know kids <laughs> you know but, and but even on up to college so these different team building conflict resolution professional and personal development mm-hmm. how to be comfortable with yourself all of these things we were kind of learning together you know i was also growing up and so when I think about mentors, I definitely have older, you know, people older than me, you know, whatever that might be, who have so much experience that I might point to. But I mentioned Diamond Spratling, you know, who is younger than me, but who I was like, tell me how you did that, you know, or we just recently had a meeting or Keenan Howitt at Emory University. And I have known each other since my South Face days and the United States Green Building Council our Atlanta group has been doing women in green every year, which you might be familiar with. Mm -hmm. And a couple of years ago, they asked certain women to choose their mentor and Keenet chose me, you know? And that was, again, one of those, I was like, well, Keenet, like you're my advisor, (laughs) you know, my guide. And she was like, no, I just learned so much from you, particularly because of how I had begun to create this, capacity around my own knowledge around environmental justice and equity as it relates to energy and environment. So that's the other thing, right? It's not just about this traditional like, oh, I've got to find someone older than me to kind of give me experience, but we've got experience in different things that can combine to all help us be better people professionally and personally. So I think that mentorship relationship. And Carla Harris is someone who I've learned a lot about mentorship from. She's a big time executive, Black woman executive at, I don't know, some like financial. I don't know the name of it. And she's written a few books all around mentorship, but talks about the different kinds of mentorship. Like there's mentors, there's sponsors, and there's advisors. And so I also think about that and have started to, when I was mentoring a young man on my team, I was like, You need to read Carla Harris's book and you need to, you know, so even like the gender breakdowns of mentorship and what that means are things that inspire me when we talk about mentorship.
0: And you did a speaker series, right, for the Volt Energy Utility, right? So talk a little bit about that, too, and anything that had come out of that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Volt Energy Utility is a Black-owned solar utility, and Gilbert Campbell has created a really exciting initiative called the Sharing the Power Foundation and doing some really innovative things around how to leverage investment in some of these utility-scale solar projects for community benefit. So there's some really exciting things happening there with Bolt Energy Utility and doing that through the Sharing the Power Foundation as kind of their philanthropic outreach arm. And so as a part of the Sharing the Power Foundation, they just launched a fellowship program this year and brought in some fellows who just all happen to be Black women. I don't think they meant for it to be women, but, you know, we usually show up first for things, (laughs) as, as we do as women. So just a really incredible group of young women, college, I think they're probably getting close to like graduating. And so they had a summer fellowship, and they did a speaker series, and I was able to come and be one of the speakers. And just always like, these are the young women that I want to be working for. You know, like these are our leaders, you know, our emerging leaders and the people who are going to be shaping what we're going to be talking about, you know, and wanting to get advice about. So that's another level of mentorship, right? Just being able to show up and talk to people like, hey, you know, I was supposed to have another one tomorrow. It was put off, but, you know, someone reached out to me and she's like, Yeah, you know, I just want these kids to know like what the Public Service Commission is and like just, you know, how you decided to run. Like they really need to like see someone who has done this, you know? And and so again, back to you can't be what you can't see, right? And in talking about building power and getting women and people in decision making seats who have real lived experience with the big, hairy, societal challenges that we are trying to address to make our communities better you know well we need those people to bring those perspectives to decision
0: making as well so right well and you mentioned the public service commission the psc that's georgia-based so before i go into kind of why you are interested in being a part of that and that sort of thing let's talk about defining what that is what is it here for you want to start there Sure, sure.
1: So in Georgia, we have the Public Service Commission, and that is a five-member body that makes all decisions about where our energy comes from and how much we pay for our utilities on the simplest of terms. Right. And so this is an elected body. It's an elected body. They serve six-year terms, six-year staggered terms, And most people don't know that. (laughs) Most people don't know. In some other states, it's called the PUC. I feel like public service is a Southern thing. I haven't looked at the list of PUCs and PSCs, but I think, so you might have a public utility commission or a public service commission. Georgia's one of like 11 states that elect their commissioners. Most other states appoint their commissioners or the governor appoints them. Or you know the legislature might appoint them, and it's interesting in Georgia. All of our commissioners really at this point have started out as governor appointments. Okay, and so once they are appointed by the governor, then they get to run as an incumbent, no matter how long they've actually been in office. So that's uh, can also be very confusing to people because when you have an office and you don't know what it is, it's like judges are for me sometimes. There's so many mm-hmm. and trying to figure out who they are, and if they've been appointed, you might go to vote and you don't know who it is. They get an I next to their name as an incumbent, which means they show up first on the ballot, and I have defaulted to this in the past. I don't know who this is. Oh, but they've done it before, but the more I started to learn about the Public Service Commission, it's like, no, you really got to dig into this because you think this person has done it before, and actually, they haven't. They just got that seat. You know that's the money for a few months, but yeah, that's the Georgia Public Service Commission. It's a very obscure body, and it was very interested to run for that office.
0: Well, and they regulate Georgia Power, but not all of the co-ops around, or the munis, or you know any other bodies like that. Is very specific to Georgia Power, right? Correct.
1: Correct. The investor-owned utilities, we will call them. So they regulate investor-owned utilities. So Georgia Power. Atlanta Gaslight. And this would be true for other states as well, where they regulate, I believe most regulate the investor-owned utilities. So our electric membership cooperatives and our municipal utilities are technically unregulated utilities. Now in Georgia, they do still sometimes have to come in front of the commission for like territorial issues. So this is why broadband comes in front of the commission sometimes, because they need to share the poll infrastructure to expand broadband. So this is something that and just recently happened in a case in front of the commission, maybe two years ago now, but over the last year. So sometimes they have to come in front, but the commission does not set their rates. But these EMCs and municipal utilities do often buy a certain amount of power or depend on. George Power, the investor-owned utility, for you know some of that generation, so it's interrelated. So the Public Service Commission doesn't set the rates for an EMC, but you can bet some of those EMCS that are bought into Plant Vogel are feeling those rate impacts as well. That's right, and right. the municipal utilities. So,
0: so with all of your background that you have talked about, and then you made the decision to run for the Public Service Commission. So tell us a little bit about what your platform was for your candidacy.
1: Yes. So I ran for public service commission based on the work that I had been doing, which was really centered around, particularly at Partnership for Southern Equity, was very largely focused on how do we bring people who are most impacted by energy and utility issues into this process? So that was a lot of trying to organize people to tell them what the commission was why it was important, try to get them up to the commission to make public comment. And in watching all of that and sharing this loops back to my earlier background of kind of growing up in politics for lack of a better, you know, and understanding the importance of being engaged in those processes. So I had kind of always thought I might engage in politics in some way, you know, I've awesome. worked in local government, you know, just because of Various partnerships from different organizations I've been in. I never thought I wanted to be the candidate. But after going through a round of our regulatory year with the integrated resource plan and the rate case, mm-hmm. and standing in front of people who have no interest, no understanding in the actual people who are on the other side of those decisions, unless it's wrapped up in a big business, right? but the actual people, like people who actually flip a light switch, just don't factor into that decision-making at all. And that requires a change in who those decision-makers are. And I was like, the people need a seat on that commission. So that was really what my run was all about. I was running to be the people's commissioner because the people need a seat on that commission to make sure their interests are weighed and their lived experience is respected and valued just as much as the professional and practitioner expertise that is brought in front of those proceedings.
0: Mm -hmm. And you had said that climate change is a defining issue of this generation. So this puts you in the position to make your impact in that way.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I came and come at climate from the built environment and Mm -hmm. energy impact on climate, right? So- Buildings, 40% of our greenhouse gas emissions, right? And thinking about, unfortunately, and we do this a lot, how climate change has become such a polarizing topic politically. Mm -hmm. And that also plays into why our commission makes decisions the way they do, right? Because Mm -hmm. instead of this being a very scientific, economic decision point, it becomes something political. And when you have a commissioner that says, I don't believe in climate change, or don't talk to me about climate change, mm-hmm. it's a problem because I know your audience can't see me, but I'm a hand talker and I'm like
0: I can see it. I see his hands. You can see
1: me, right? It's like, what do you it. mean? <laughs> you know, um, Georgia, yes, you know, we're doing good on on retirement when we talk about where the top carbon polluters in the entire nation are, they're in Georgia. They're in Alabama. They're here in the South. When we talk about the South as a place where 80% of counties are persistent poverty counties, these are counties that experience poverty for three decades or more, are in the South. And then when we talk about the concentration of Black people that are in the South, you know, so we've got this rural, you know, we've got this racial, you know, we've got this economic We've got this environmental, all of these things compounding on us. And when you have decision makers who don't want to look past what a utility is telling them, who is only set up to make money, (laughs) right? I mean, they deliver a very important resource and they are granted their monopolies because of that. But that doesn't mean you just get to treat people any way you want to. And our intervention point on that are these decision-making bodies like the Public Service Commission.
0: Well, and so this is not a Georgia thing, but to layer onto that, we just newly, I say newly, recently signed into law the new Inflation Reduction Act, which maybe can bring more of that intersection that you've been talking about together because you've got, federal funding and that sort of thing. Plus you have, so it's just very attainable for a local business, a local nonprofit, for the people, like you've been talking about, you know, representing them, that this is something that is accessible. So tell us about any insights that you're seeing in that act and what you're seeing might come out of that. Historic, right? Period.
1: That's what we can say. There's a lot of tension in the environmental justice community related to the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. And this is a function, a writer put this way more eloquently than I did. And I can't even remember the title of it right now, but basically she said trying to insert environmental justice into climate policy is like trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Like the two just don't go together. And this is not news. This is why the clean energy industry you know has a diversity problem. This is why certain communities are disproportionately impacted by fossil fuel infrastructure or polluting infrastructure. Like this is not news. <laughs> you know, these disparities exist and that is why there's so much work and focus on equity. So much work and focus on justice or DEI, you know, if we're talking about like companies and, and corporations and things like that. So this was a historic thing that happened. It also has the potential, if we do not stay intentionally focused on the access piece that you talk about, Mm -hmm. to further enshrine environmental injustice, because there's some things in there, you know, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, what a lot of EJ communities might call false solutions, like around hydrogen, carbon capture sequestration. So these are things that are in conflict with a climate justice movement and environmental justice movement. But it is historic and it is a tidal wave of investment just in between the American Rescue Plan, between the IIJA, Infrastructure and Investment Jobs Act, and now this reconciliation bill with the inflation reduction. This is a tidal wave of investment we have never seen before. And for all the people who worked so hard for years, Mm -hmm. (laughs) decades, right? To make this happen, we have to remember that we can't continue to leave these voices and these communities behind that are raising these issues. So it's very exciting to talk about all the opportunity, but access and opportunity does not happen on its own, right? That's the core of an equity issue. Equity doesn't happen on its own clean energy isn't equitable just because we all like it and it's better for the environment. Lots of things are better for the environment that don't benefit all the people who need to benefit for it. So it's just, you know, people are ready to launch back into work. I was just on a call earlier today, like talking about the trackers that are needed with with a lot of the initiatives that have sprouted up in the advocacy community supported by philanthropy to make state to federal initiatives, right? How do we help states and local partners on the ground, local governments track where the money is going, track where it's coming from, and track what they can do with it? How do we make sure these state agencies and local governments have money to build capacity within their agencies to deliver on things like Justice 40, which was born of President Biden's executive order on racial equity, which says that 40% of the benefits of infrastructure investment should be directed to what they're defining as disadvantaged communities which isn't the best term but but that's what they're using but there's got to be someone to hold that right people just don't know like I still talk to people they have no idea what justice 40 is and these are like local government people these are agency people we the royal we know what that stuff is so now the hard work begins to make sure that we are able to hold the people who are going to be able to receive these dollars accountable to things like Justice 40, accountable to partnering with communities and community partners who have been driving that work.
0: Well, and I love how you don't, Just stay in your own backyard. And I guess I should say it that I love the fact that you outreach pretty continuously. So we were talking about how you had just gone to Montana and met with a group there. So talk a little bit about why you went and what came out of that, what you learned from there.
1: Yeah. So I was fortunate to be invited to a convening of some leaders around energy and climate in Montana for a foundation. And this is a foundation that is planning to incorporate an energy strategy into their grant making. And they want to make sure that it's done through a lens of equity. And their focus areas are Georgia and Montana. So it was a very interesting, what you think might be a mismatch But part of our conversations that week were about the commonalities between our two states and some of the issues that we face related to advancing a clean energy agenda grounded in equity and justice. So really interesting conversations around that. And one of the things that we had a lot of conversation about and something that I still think about is We, the royal we, you know, I feel like, you know, if we're talking about like advocacy and just like the national conversation now, how it has shifted to be able to even talk about racial equity or to be even be able to talk about environmental. Like to have that language coming from the federal government is a huge shift (laughs) that we should all be very clear about what a historic shift just even the conversation is, first of all, at that level. And so the other piece of that I wanted to talk about is with that, because clean energy is moving, like that train has left the station, it's leaving people behind because there are younger folks and people who've been committed to clean energy and environmental justice working on clean energy We're putting a lot of our eggs in the clean energy, renewable energy industry basket to fix our societal problems with racism and to fix our societal problems with environmental injustice. And a lot of that is deserved. A lot of those eggs do belong in that basket because we're talking about infrastructure. We're talking about unprecedented investment. So we do have to, you know, put the onus on where that investment is going and who's got the power to make these decisions and have access to this investment. So we talked a lot about that. We talked a lot about winners and losers. There's always a trade-off, always. Right. And how do we mitigate that? You know, how are we making sure? I mean, we just talked about the Inflation Reduction Act and, I mean, talk about a lot of that language is essentially... It's said a lot nicer and more eloquent than what I'm saying, but it's really a conversation about who's going to be the winner and who's going to be the loser. And how do we make sure that a trade-off doesn't mean somebody has to lose? Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that because we have to prioritize this over here, that doesn't mean that someone's getting the short end of the stick over here or a community isn't able to benefit from new infrastructure or that their voice is being drowned out it's complex. Like this is a big term and I don't say it that much, but I was having a conversation earlier with some friends of mine from, you know, a very technical focused organization. And they were talking about struggling with DEI and how it's all been that way. And it's like not letting y'all off the hook because you got some work to do and you not news, but it is hard. It's hard. We have to lean into this hard work. We can't be afraid to have the hard conversations. I never in a million years (laughs) would have thought even five years ago that I would be able to be in conversations or in spaces where I can talk about white supremacy, where I can talk about racism, where I can talk about the impact of the patriarchy and how those play out in this clean energy economy that's been emerging. You know, I never would have had, Even like on the building side and technology, we didn't even talk about climate change because, you know, we're working with a very traditional conservative building industry. Right. Mm -hmm. So just again, let's give ourselves a little bit of credit, but keep our feet moving. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) We got to keep our feet moving because this is really hard work and it takes all of us. And I don't want to be sitting around. 10 years from now and thinking I didn't do whatever I could at every juncture to make sure that people who stand to benefit the most, people who have an opportunity to pull themselves out of poverty because of the kind of opportunity that awaits
0: them, that I didn't do everything I could to help make that happen. So that leads me perfectly into say, what is next for you? What's your next chapter? I'm still
1: giving that a lot of thought, Sharon. <laughs> I am <laughs> I committed to myself after the campaign and all the craziness that even followed that, you mm-hmm. know, with with our public service commission, there's a really landmark federal decision related to voting rights. You know, so again, like this full right. circle, you know, with with our public service commission in Georgia, mm-hmm. that the at large method meaning that you have to run to represent a district, but you run statewide. And it's very judge ruled. Yeah, you're very confusing to people. People don't get it. When I talk to people from not just Georgia, but from other states, they're like, y'all do what? What are you talking? What do you mean? You know, and just how confusing that is. But it is also a violation of the Federal Voting Rights Act. And so it's not just confusing. It's like a violation of our voting rights is what this case, very sound data presented, you know, focused on this. And how do you let elections continue under this manner when you have a finding, even though it's under appeal or whatever, you can't unsee, you know what you know, but now it's like, we have a federal ruling here, you know, that proves it. So in the midst of all of that, should I decide to run again? <laughs> I'm on about a 15 month, 15 to 18 months trajectory of, okay, what do I really want to dive into headfirst and run hard with in this moment? And there's some really incredible opportunities. There's so much exciting work happening with very uncommon allies that may never have done work together before who have been coming together to try to solve some of these really gnarly challenges in the corner that they can solve them, right? This is why grassroots local solutions are so important because this is super hyper local work. What works for me over here in Midtown Atlanta is not what folks need in Pittsburgh that is just 15 minutes away from me in Pittsburgh, Atlanta. What we do in city of Atlanta isn't necessarily in all cases what Savannah needs who is on the coast mm-hmm. basically, or Brunswick, Georgia, those folks on the coast folks in like coastal erosion, flooding, you know, the ports. So it's super energy. Utility work is super hyper local. Mm -hmm. And there's really exciting local solutions happening. And so on the one hand, you know, it's like, can I dive in, you know, super deep on Georgia? Because we got a lot of work to do here. But maintain that ability to learn from and help influence and share learnings from what we do down here in the South with the national global audiences. This really is So I've always been really interested in the tie from the local to the global. So maybe something within that sphere, but that's as far as I've gotten, Sharon. Right now, I'm just focused on trying to maintain my summer break. And I mean, summer as an equinox,
0: summer, not Labor Day. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Well, I look forward to staying in touch and seeing how your path, where it's, getting more focused along the way during that time. But if people want to reach out to you, talk to you about what you're doing and your thoughts on things like that, tell them how to reach you.
1: Yes. So I'm most active on LinkedIn. So you can find me Chandra Farley on LinkedIn and Twitter at Chandra Farley on Twitter. And if you send me a LinkedIn message, I'm you know probably going to get it. My email is Chandra at re-solve.org. You can reach out to me there as well. But those are the easiest ways to get in touch with me. And I do have a LinkedIn page and an Instagram page for the Good Energy Project. So um, you could follow the Good Energy Project on LinkedIn or Instagram. I'm just kind of getting up to, this is why I was talking with Diamond yesterday, but, you know, resources to kind of start being more active with that and maybe looking for a community manager. So if there are folks out there, you know, who understand that sphere, definitely reach out to me.
0: Okay. Well, that's fantastic. Well, thank you. I cannot thank you enough for joining us today on the sunny side. This has been a great conversation. It is so exciting. It's hard not to get wrapped up in your passion and your energy and all of that. And so I hope everyone has enjoyed our conversation today. You're a breath of fresh air and I look forward to seeing great things out of you.
1: Thank you, Sharon. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Sounds good. Thanks so
0: much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Sunnyside Podcast. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review. You can also email questions, suggestions, and compliments to Sharon at VeloSolar.com. The Sunny Side is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company and executive produced by Sharon Lee.